Well, last week, uh, we had our introduction to our Christmas series uh, for this year, which is uh, called Christmas Foretold. Uh, that's the, the name of the series because uh, we're looking at uh, fulfilled prophecies in the story of Christmas. And we're doing that to better understand uh, the story itself and to better understand uh, God. Um, Joshua Scott was speaking last week, and one of the lines that he said uh, was great. Uh, he said, you can tell a lot about someone by the promises that they keep. Uh, very true. Uh, what's also true is that you can tell a lot about someone by the way they keep their promises. See, the method and the manner of God's activity in human history tells us a lot about what he is like. Uh, in fact, uh, I'd like us to begin today with, with an idea that hopefully will help us to, uh, to grasp uh, the value of biblical prophecy. And the idea that it wants to think about is this. Uh, all great artists, all great, great creators, they tend to have a signature style. It's not just that they would create things or make things out of wood or clay or paint, but they do it in a certain way, according to a certain vision that they have. Uh, to illustrate this, um, I want to I show you some things. Uh, you're, you're probably watching me on a screen, so uh, you, you can take advantage of that. If you're listening on the podcast, uh, this isn't going to work for you. Just imagine, I guess, the paintings I'm going to show you. But uh, for everyone watching, uh, here's the first painting. I'm going to show you a painting. You're going to see if you can guess uh, who the painter is. And what I want us to note is through the different paintings, the different styles, very different styles. Um, and so here's the first one. This painting is called uh, The Storm on the Sea of Galilee. And what you can probably notice right away is that this painter uh, is a master of the use of light. Uh, you can see there that the light kind of focuses the eye on the action. It gives a real depth of, of the drama. And so uh, if you think you know the, the artist here, if this, you're with someone, you can just say it out loud now and uh, see if you're right. The artist is Rembrandt. Rembrandt is the name of the artist. I, I don't know if he has a first name. I can't remember. But uh, he is a master of light and darkness, a Renaissance painter. Okay, here's the second painting. Very different style. Uh, this painting is called Dieppe in the Evening. You can notice it has light and darkness, but there's a lot of color. And in particular, you notice this painter has very uh, wide, very dramatic brush strokes. Like you can see all the places that he has painted. And that's because this is the, an impressionistic style. And so um, if you know impressionists, you, you might guess that uh, this is Monet. Claude Monet, um, uh, painted in the 1800s. A very different style. Now this last painting is different from the first two entirely. Uh, this painting uh, also uses color, also uses shadow and light, but it's the subject of the painting that is the biggest deal here. This is called Clock Explosion. It's very kind of silly and bizarre, and that's because it's a surrealist work, and um, probably then, maybe, the name jumps into your mind, which is Salvador Dali. Uh, he is the most famous um, surrealist painter. And uh, so hopefully, I don't know if you got three out of three, one out of three, it uh, doesn't really matter. Uh, what I hope you see matters is that, boy, you can really tell, uh, if you know an artist and how they work, you can just look at a work of art, you can tell who painted it. Their signature style really comes through. Uh, not just what they paint, but how they paint it. Um, the, the style that they use really tells us a lot about the person who is painting it. And um, the reason I want to tell you that is because the same is true for God. I mean, in a real sense, God has a signature style. Uh, certain elements are always present in God's activity in the world. Uh, the challenge, though, is that they're very often difficult for us to see uh, because instead of being able to step back and look at God's creative work, we're right in the painting. 
I mean, the brushstrokes are, are actually our lives and the circumstances of our lives. And so we tend to get focused on our particular area of God's work and not see the, the big picture. And this is where biblical prophecy is so helpful, so valuable. Because with biblical prophecy, we can see what God planned to do and then also how it came to be. So, so you get kind of a window into the creative work itself, like a behind-the-scenes take on a movie. You can see how, how things happened. So uh, last week, we looked at the fulfillment of prophecy with the virgin birth. Today, we're going to look at the setting of that birth, which, of course, is the town of Bethlehem. And so we're going to look at two key aspects of God's signature style, uh, his signature style that really jumps off the page when it comes to the fulfilled prophecy of Bethlehem. And the two key aspects we're going to look at uh, are control and weakness. Those are the two things that jump out for us, control and weakness. So let's look at the first in more detail. Uh, I'm going to say it this way. Uh, one of God's signature style, one element of it, is that God is always in control. God is always in control. Now, again, this is uh, difficult for us to see. And, and one of the reasons this uh, element in particular is difficult for us to see is because uh, it doesn't usually feel like things are in control in our lives. Very often, things feel out of control. And the same, I mean, this is true in the Christmas story. If you think of um, Mary and Joseph, uh, they had a plan for their life. They were planning on getting married. They were young people on the verge of adulthood. And then all of a sudden, all their plans got thrown out the window because an angel showed up to Mary, said, you're going to be with child. And then Joseph kind of freaked out a bit, tried to figure out what to do. And an angel showed up to him and said, look, you need to accept this. This is the plan of God. And so they did. Uh, Joseph accepted it. Uh, they started to figure out this new plan for probably about eight months. Uh, they, they were expecting this baby and Joseph was going to you know, adopt the baby as his own or at least everyone would think it's his and they were just making it work. And then, then even that plan got kind of thrown out the window again, this time seemingly not from a decree from God, but by a decree, a decree from, from the emperor, from Caesar. So we're going to be in sort of three passages, uh, Luke and then Matthew and, and Micah. But here's Luke. This is Luke chapter 2. And uh, this, is, uh, this is the decree that kind of threw a monkey wrench into their plans yet again. So Luke 2 uh, verse 1. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria and all went to be registered each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and the lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. So you can imagine uh, what that would have been like on that day when the uh, Roman soldiers came into Nazareth and they posted the decree, everyone's got to go be registered. You can imagine how Joseph and Mary would have, would have felt. Uh, all of a sudden, again, um, powers beyond their control were compelling them to do something that they had no intention of doing, uh, something that was very inconvenient, very costly. You know what? <laughs> I think actually we can imagine that this Christmas more than other Christmases in the past. Uh, because this Christmas, we have gotten orders from the government, uh, public health orders that are compelling us to do things that probably none of us had any intention of doing, things that are very inconvenient, things that are, are costly. Uh, COVID has meant that many of our plans have been thrown out the window. Travel plans, social plans, uh, business plans, Christmas plans. 
everyone is impacted and, and no one really feels in control. But I think this must have been especially confusing for Mary and Joseph because for them, remember, they had already gotten their plans upset and a new plan was put in place by God. And so they thought that they were, you know, going under the, the hand and the blessing of God. And now these huge logistical difficulties were right in front of them. And you can imagine them thinking, God, why, why are you allowing this to ruin your plans? This isn't what we thought would happen. This isn't what, you know, the road you, you started us down. If you're not um, familiar with the geography, uh, to go from Nazareth to Bethlehem was not a, a short journey. Uh, it, it's, it's about from here to Hope, about 145 kilometers, which doesn't seem that far, but that's because for us, we just fly along the highway. If you were to walk that, and remember the terrain was very rocky, there were rivers to, to cross, it was very hilly, the weather was extreme, they had to carry uh, all of their provisions with them, and there were, um, there were robbers, there were thieves, bandits just waiting for them. This was a perilous journey. And the whole thing would have left them feeling very out of control and wondering, you know, God, where are you in all this? I thought you were kind of taking care of things. But when we look at prophecy, when we look at the biblical story in its wider context, what, what we see very clearly is that Bethlehem was not a mistake. Bethlehem was not an interruption. In fact, it was always part of the plan. Now, this becomes clear for us when we look uh, in the book of Matthew and we see what happens when the wise men come to see this new king. Um, this is probably a couple years after Jesus was born. They've been following the star. They come into Jerusalem because they assume that's where the king will be. And they go to Herod, who's the Roman ruler over the area. And he's troubled by this, this talk about a new king. But when he talks to his scribes, like his wise men, they're, they're not surprised at all. In fact, they know exactly where this child would be born. So here's a part of what we already heard read, but this is uh, to focus in on the prophecy itself. They answered King Herod. They said, um, look, uh, the child will be born in Bethlehem of Judea. For so it is written by the prophet. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. So the prophecy that is being quoted there is from the prophet Micah. Uh, again, we already heard it read, but think about it. This was 700 years earlier-ish. <clears throat> this was in the time of Isaiah, uh, evil king Ahaz that we heard about last week. Micah was prophesying in the same time. <clears throat> and let's look specifically at what Micah said, his words. This is Micah 5 verse 2. He said, But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who were too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. So it's pretty clear that Bethlehem was always part of the plan. Uh, what seemed to be like an unexpected uh, kind of obstacle put in Mary and Joseph's way uh, by forces beyond their control actually was yet another example of God's meticulous sovereignty. That his hand was moving the pieces around the board exactly as he wanted. In fact, if you knew the prophecy of Micah, and you knew that uh, Mary was, was carrying the Messiah. If you saw them in Nazareth, you wouldn't be thinking all's going according to plan. You'd be thinking, man, I wonder, I wonder when they're going to move. Because God already told us where this child would be born. See, God is reminding us here that he, in fact, is always in control. Sometimes uh, that control is revealed very directly. Like when an angel comes, when the Spirit of God uh, brings about a child in Mary. I mean, that's a very direct, miraculous uh, uh, controlling of events. But most of the time, God is kind of working behind the scenes. 
I mean, think for a moment what it took to compel Mary and Joseph to make this, this dangerous journey. It took a decree from the most powerful human being on the planet. I mean, Caesar. And Caesar, I mean, just so you know, no one suggests anything to Caesar. Caesar does what Caesar wants to do. You can't even get an audience with Caesar unless he wants to see you. If you try, you're, you're going to be put to death. And yet God was able to control even Caesar to bring about uh, his plans. Proverbs 21 uh, verse 1 uh, is a revealing verse that kind of uh, tells us about the depth of God's uh, controlling power. It says this, The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. See, God's rule is absolute. His control is absolute, and this is not an isolated incident. We see this time and time again throughout the pages of Scripture. In fact, back in the time of Micah, if you remember uh, last week, uh, Joshua told us that this was a time of great turmoil for God's people. Uh, Isaiah was there, and King Ahaz was worried because there were all these nations that were threatening uh, God's people. Judah at the time. There was Syria, there was the northern kingdom, and then there was Assyria, even the bigger empire. And all of them were wanting to come and besiege uh, the people of God. And so look in Micah 4 how this is described according to God's point of view. This is right before the prophecy about Bethlehem. Micah says this, How many nations are assembled against you saying, Let her be defiled and let our eyes gaze upon Zion. That's, that's the threat. But they do not know the thoughts of the Lord. They do not understand his plan that he has gathered them as sheaves to the threshing floor. See, God's signature style really comes through in these verses. You have the enemy nations saying to themselves, thinking to themselves, man, we have, we have God's people, the, the people of Judah, exactly where we want them. We're going to come in. We're going to destroy them. It's going to be great. Uh, God's people are, are freaking out. I mean, Ahaz is freaking out, trying to figure out how they're going to survive. They're so worried. This is the end, they figure. And yet God says there, look, none of you understands my plan. All of you are looking at this in the wrong way. To the enemy nations, they think we are assembling to defeat this people. But God tells them, no, no, I'm bringing you in. I'm gathering you because I'm going to destroy you. Like wheat being threshed on the threshing floor. Think, think for a moment, how can this be? How can this be that entire nations are governed by one entity? Well, it's, it's very clear in Micah. Here's Micah 4, 13. He says that God is Lord of the whole earth. The whole earth. Everything in it, everyone, big and small, that's who God is. And he's still that way. He's still doing this in our lives right now. In fact, all around us. The chaos that we, that we see around us, in fact, what, we're, what we see here is, is never actually chaos. It's always God who is in control of everything. So that's true. Why is it so hard for us to believe why is it so hard for us to see? And the answer is in part because we're in the painting. Because we, we can't see the, the full effect of, of the brushstrokes all coming together to reveal his sovereignty and his majesty and his control. We can't see the finished effect. In fact, there are many things in our lives, destructive things that we think, look, if that's present, that must mean that everything's out of control. But let me give you an example of, to help us see how that's not, that's not necessarily the case. Uh, I want you to think of uh, something called a controlled burn. You know that is a controlled burn uh, in forest fires. We have forest fires, uh, sadly, every summer. 
Uh, there's a lot of strategies to deal with the forest fire. They have water bombers, of course, that come and you know, drop water. They have uh, fire crews that cut fire lines uh, to try to stop the fire. But they also have something called um, a controlled burn. And a controlled burn is when they light a fire, the forest river lights a fire that burns back towards the, the main fire. And when they come together, they burn itself out. All the fuel is gone. It saves the forest. It's a good thing. But I want you to imagine it uh, from the point of view of a squirrel. Because from the point of view of a squirrel, fire is fire. So if your tree is on fire, that's not a good day. Like it's, it's chaos. Everything, this is, this is the worst. All your nuts are being burned up. I mean, you have to flee. It's, it's not a good thing. But from the forest service's point of view, this is a very good thing. And it is. It's stopping the forest fire from getting any bigger. See, here's the thing we need to realize. God is always in control, but that doesn't mean that in the short term we will always have peace and tranquility. Because God's plans for us are, are, are bigger than we realize and sometimes different than we realize. God's plans for us and for the world is to redeem us, a sinful people in a sinful world. And that means that God is going to confront us in our sin. The Bible uses words like God is, go God is going to prune us. He's going to discipline us. He's going to convict us of our sin, rebuke us in our sin. He is, he is literally going to burn down certain things in our lives so that we see them for what they truly are and so that we turn, him, turn to him for the help that we really need. See, the mistake we make is in thinking that, that hardship and difficulty means that things are out of control. They aren't. They never are because that's not who God is. We see this in the story of Christmas. And if we're looking carefully, we can see it in the story of our lives. If we look back on some of the hardest times of our lives, as we get more distance, more perspective, we can see more clearly how God is at work, even in those times, sometimes especially in those times. So God is in control. Um, if this is true, which it is, then it's, it's life-giving for us in, in a few important ways. I mean, if God is in control, then that means we don't have to be. And for many of us, we really think we need to be in control of everything in our lives. In fact, we spend every waking minute trying to control all the details of our lives. It's exhausting, it's overwhelming, and it never works. What we see here in the pages of Scripture is that we can have peace even when we are not in control because we know that, we know that God is. The second implication for us is that if God is in control, then it means we don't need to be anxious. We don't need to be worried because he actually does have everything in his hands and he actually is working everything out for our good. So look, if you're struggling with, with these things this week, um, I think it'll be helpful for you to think of Mary and Joseph. Mary and Joseph on that evening in Bethlehem. See, they were miles away from where they thought they should be they're miles away from where they wanted to be, and yet they were exactly where God had for them, according to his best plan. And that very often is happening in our lives. So the next question we might ask then uh, is, okay, but, but why Bethlehem? Like, why, why the journey? Why the travel? And this leads us to the second element of God's signature style that we're going to look at. Uh, number two, uh, God only uses or blesses the weak. 
I couldn't decide which word to go with. So, so uses or blesses. They kind of go hand in hand, you're going to see. But God only uses the, uh, or blesses the weak. Now, uh, you might wonder about that word only, because it's a very, it's an absolute kind of exclusive term. You might think, really, God only blesses those who are weak? And in fact, if you look through Scripture, you see it's true. I mean, think of Moses. God came to Moses, said, I want you to go and free my people. Moses' response is, you got to find someone else. I don't put words together good. You talk not good. So uh, how, can I, how can you use me? God's response is, I'm going to use you. I'll send Aaron to help you. But you're the one I've chosen. Uh, think of Samuel, who was chosen as a young boy to be a prophet. Think of the disciples of Jesus, who were told very clearly, were not the best and the brightest. Uh, they, were, they were corrupt. Uh, they were tax collectors, they were sinners, they were uneducated, they were ill-equipped for the task at hand, yet that's who Jesus chose. Think of the Apostle Paul, who only really became a servant of God when he, would humble, when he was humbled, when his weakness was revealed. That was the point when God started to, to use him. And think of the words of Jesus in Matthew 5, when he says that it's those who are poor in spirit, those who are meek, those who are full of mourning and hunger, they are the ones who will be blessed. They are the ones who will see the kingdom and inherit the earth. And in the fulfillment of Micah's prophecy, what we see is, is an emphasis placed on the weakness of Bethlehem according to the world, but then on the great importance of Bethlehem according to the plans of God. In fact, this becomes really clear when you look at the two examples, the two times where this prophecy is mentioned in Scripture. Uh, Matthew and Micah. So Matthew is kind of referring to Micah, but look at the difference in the language. Um, here's Micah, Micah 5.2. says, But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah. But then Matthew says it this way. He says, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. It shifts, right? It seems like Matthew's saying the opposite. But he's not saying the opposite. What he's doing is he's just... He's making clearer what Micah really meant. What Micah meant was, look, Bethlehem, you, you know that you're the smallest, that, that you're weak, that you're little and insignificant, but you're not in God's eyes. See, what Matthew's saying is you're by no means the least because God has chosen to use you. In fact, what, what Matthew is making really clear is that importance is, from God's point of view, importance and significance is always in the hands of the weak and the small. Not the strong, not the mighty. Uh, just think of the town of Bethlehem itself. I mean, it's, it's called the town of David. It was David's hometown. And David, King David, is like the, the poster child for God choosing and using weakness. He was, he was the youngest in the family. He had 11 older brothers, stronger brothers. Um, he, was, he was the youngest and, and kind of the, the skinniest, the weakest. He was uh, a poet. He liked to play the harp. He he tended fuzzy sheep. He, he was not what anyone would think would be like king material. And yet that's who God chose. Why? Because God knew his heart. He, he knew him and he knew that when David ruled, he would uh, rule in such a way that God would be magnified. See, David was by no means a perfect man or a perfect king. But what we see in his life is that there's weakness, there's vulnerability, there's humility, and all of it serves to honor God. In fact, I want to read to you um, David's battle cry against Goliath. I mean, that battle is like the classic example of God using weakness. So picture in your mind, tiny little David walking over to the battlefield, and then you have giant Goliath, nine-foot-tall Goliath with all of his armor. And listen to the words that David speaks 
in, in confronting Goliath. Here's what he says. He says, he says, you, you come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin. But I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand. And I will strike you down and cut off your head. And I will give the dead bodies of the hosts of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth will know that there is a God in Israel, and that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves not with a sword or with a spear. For the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hand. You see what David is saying? saying, this is all about God. God's glory, God's power. And that's the key to understanding God's use of weakness. Because when God uses human weakness, it's the best way for us to see him. For us to see his power, his glory, his strength. Because frankly, that's what we really need to see. Frankly, we've seen enough of human strength, of human power. I mean, our minds, our minds are full of thoughts about ourselves. Our world is full of examples of all of the, the strength and ingenuity of human beings. And, and look, it's good to a point. But none of that is actually going to help us in the end. In fact, in the end, very often, it's our strengths that, that are our greatest trouble. It's our strengths that lead to our destruction. I want to illustrate this by telling you a story. Uh, this is uh, soon... Uh, this is becoming one of my famous stor uh, favorite stories. Uh, because mostly of its title. So here's the title of the story. Uh, the title is The Donut King of California. Uh, here's a picture of the Donut King of California. Uh, that's really what they called him. His name, his name is Ted Nagoy. And uh, he was, for many years, the Donut King. Uh, that's a picture of him kind of in the present day. So I think he's in his, his 70s. But back in the 1970s, he came to America from Cambodia with his family. Here's a picture of him and his family from back then. Uh, they were refugees uh, fleeing the civil war in Cambodia. Now, the thing you have to understand about uh, Ted is that uh, he, he had a lot of strengths. Uh, he was a very uh, persistent man, a very hard worker, had a keen mind for, for business. And when he immigrated to, to uh, America, uh, there was a, a church that sponsored them and gave him a janitorial job. And he, he worked there for a little while and realized this is not going to support my family. And near the church, uh, there was a donut shop. There's a lot of donut shops in California. And so he, he looked there and he thought, man, I, that looks like a good business. There's people coming in and out all the time. So he went over to the donut shop and said, you know, how can, how can I run one of these donut uh, places? And they said, well, there's a management training course. Three months, Winchell's Donuts. So he went, he took the course, and they gave him his own donut shop to manage. Uh, here's a picture of him with his first uh, donut shop. This was on Balboa Pier. You can see there the sign of the window. It was open 24 hours. So he and his wife, Christy, they ran the shop 24 hours. Uh, they would take turns. Uh, they would sometimes sleep in the donut shop. And before long, he said, you know, I think I can run another one. So they got another donut shop, managed both of them. And uh, within a year, they had saved up enough money to buy their own donut shop. So they bought their own bigger donut shop. And that's when uh, he, got, he got the real idea that would, that would transform everything because he realized there were more and more families, Cambodian families, friends and family that he knew that were coming over as refugees. And so what he would do is buy a donut shop and then lease them the shop. He would train them, get them set up so they would have a you know, means of employment. And he did this over and over and over again. Ten years later, 
uh, Ted Nagoy uh, had 60 donut shops that he owned, that he was leasing, that he was operating, and he had helped 100 families come over and settle in the United States of America. He was a, a millionaire. He, he was making enough money for a lifestyle that he'd always dreamed of. It was wonderful. It was everything that they had hoped for. But sadly, uh, sadly, he couldn't hang on to it. And the reason he couldn't hang on to it was because of gambling. Uh, he took a trip to Las Vegas and got hooked on gambling, and this is what he says. He says, we were happy until the gambling came to wreck my life. The gambling is sad, the saddest part of my life. Once he tried it, he couldn't stop. Weekend after weekend, he began traveling to Las Vegas. He lost thousands and thousands of dollars. And at first, he started borrowing from the people that he you know, worked with, and that he helped, and they were happy to lend him the money at first. But then it became clear that he couldn't pay it back. So without telling his wife, he began to, to sign over donut shops. He neglected his donut empire, neglected his family. There are stories of, of Christy bringing the kids to Las Vegas to look for Ted, and he would hide behind the, the slot machines. It was horrible. By 2002, he was penniless, uh, he was divorced, and he was estranged from his, his friends and his family. And this is what he says. He says, Many times I tried to commit suicide because I hate myself. And then I hate the gambling, and then I hate the way that I treat Christy so badly, treat my children so badly because of the gambling, so I hate myself. He had no prospects. Uh, there was an older Cambodian woman who took pity on him, let him sleep on her porch, covered porch, fed him, and let him shower there. And she invited him uh, to church. Her son uh, was a, a Baptist pastor, and, and Ted started coming to church on Sundays, and he came to faith. He came to see his need for Christ. In fact, he says it, it was because of his faith in Christ that he was cured of his gambling addiction, that he found true faith, true hope, and he did begin to put his life back together again. Praise God. It's what God always does in our lives. He transforms them. But, but here's the reason I'm telling you the story. is because when Ted reflected on uh, gambling itself, listen to what he says. He says, the same character traits that made me take bold risks in life also made me... Um, Easy prey for gambling. He says, gambling is the purest form of risk-taking. The distilled anxiety, the thrill behind every business decision, every bold a decision in my life. What Ted realized was that it wasn't his weaknesses that were the problem, it was his strengths. And that because of these strengths that he had, he was, he was blinded. And he was easily addicted to gambling and he lost everything. In fact, if you think about it, um, if Ted had remained the Donut King millionaire, even those strengths, even with that sort of um, lifestyle that he was living, it would have made it very difficult for him to accept Christ, for him to see his need for Jesus. And yet it was when Ted was at his weakest that he saw his true need and received the strength that he really needed, life itself, forgiveness of his sins. See, what we should note in our lives, in, in biblical uh, texts of scripture, in, in this story itself, is that it's our strengths as human beings that are our problem. And it's in our weakness that God does his best work. Because God isn't interested in giving us temporary blessings, circumstantial, earthly blessings that will only last for a short amount of time. He wants to give us eternal joys, everlasting life. And the only way for us to truly receive those blessings is for us to, to be humbled to confess our sin, to repent, and to see that the glory and the wonder of God, to see our need for Jesus, that only happens when we see our weaknesses clearly. 
The Apostle Paul, I think, learned this lesson more than once. And he writes about it in the book of 2 Corinthians. Um, he, he's been praying to God that God would take away these trials and afflictions in his life. And here's how God responds. This is 2 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 9. God responds, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, Paul says, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses. Think of that, content with weaknesses, content with insults, content with hardships and persecutions and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. This has huge implications for our lives. Because for many of us, I mean, we feel fairly strong in life. I mean, we're, we've been able to, to build a life for ourselves. We have certain skill sets and, and abilities just to make life work. What we need to recognize is that if God really loves us, he will not allow us to continue with that kind of a lifestyle. He, he will humble us. Even better, we will humble ourselves. We will come on our knees to the Lord and say, look, actually everything is going to fall apart. If I don't have you, Jesus, I need you. What we should take to heart is, is when that happens, when we are humbled, we shouldn't fight it. We shouldn't think to ourselves that everything is falling apart. What we should realize is, is Lord, you're drawing me closer to yourself. Lord, help me to see clearly my weakness and your strength. And help me to live out of your strength and not my own. But what if you are weak? I mean, what if you feel, feel small, feel powerless? It's frustrating to feel that way. But there is great blessing in it too. Because, because in our weakness, we can see our need for God very clearly. In fact, we can see the strength of God very clearly. And we can rejoice that that strength is actually ours through our faith, through the ministry of the Spirit, that we are not just on our own trying to make a way through this life. We have the power of Christ in us. He redeemed us. He loves us. See, the Christmas story uh, is meant to remind us of this reversal, this kind of gospel reversal of, of power and weakness. Because remember, Jesus, he was the most powerful being in the universe. And he came, he came in the form of a baby. In a baby, not a mighty warrior or a, or a grand king in the form of a baby. He arrived in a town that no one cared about or even really knew where it was. And he was destined to be tortured and killed. And through all of that weakness, that the strength and the power of God prevailed. And the promise of God is that when we put our faith in Jesus, he will do that very same thing in our lives. All of the, all of the seeming chaos and, and lack of control and lack of strength, God will, God will use it to build us up in him. That he might be glorified, that we might be truly blessed. See, the universe, the universe is in fact a masterwork by a master artist. Other artists use clay, use paint to, to do their creative work, but God, God uses the very details of the universe itself. I mean, every, every life, every moment, every event, even the dark things in this world, God weaves together to display the most beautiful and powerful things that exist in the universe. And those are his majesty his glory, his love, his, his grace, all of these things depicted in the universe around us 
We're just in the middle of it. So it's hard for us to see. My hope, though, my hope, though, is that this Christmas, especially this Advent season leading up to the, to the celebration of the birth of, of Christ, that we do take some time to gaze into the story of Christmas and, and into the nature of the universe and that as we do that, we can see some of this signature style of God coming through, that God is, in fact, in control of everything and God delights in using weakness and he does it. He does it so that his power and his strength will be revealed. And that we will see that everything we need is not in of ourselves, in the world, but is in fact in Jesus. In Jesus, who was born in Bethlehem, in a manger, the weakest of kings, and yet filled with grace and love that will save us. Let me pray for us. Lord Jesus, I thank you that even though you were born in weakness, Lord Jesus, you were so powerful, so gracious. Lord Jesus, you, you came so that we might understand better that in of ourselves, we don't have the strength that we need, that, that we can't control all of the events of our lives to bring about our, our greatest good. We can't, we can't have strength in the midst of all circumstances that, that our sin, Lord, has corrupted us and, and weakened us. We need you, Jesus. We need to be forgiven of our sins. I pray, I pray for us this week. I pray for us right now even that God, wherever we are, those of us who are who feel that we're strong, I pray, Lord, you would, you would help us to see we need to be humbled. And Lord, Lord, those of us who are weak, I pray, God, that we would see we have strength in you. Lord, I pray this Christmas that we would be carried. We'd be carried by the truths of Scripture, of all that you've done, and also by your good character and by your spirit. And Lord Jesus, that indeed you would be magnified in our lives and that we would, we would be content with our weakness. We'd be content with the afflictions because we know that it's yet another opportunity for us to glorify you and for others to see your power in our lives. I pray, please, Lord, for your blessing on us now. In Jesus' name, amen.